Welcome back to Talking Acoustics. Uh, my guest on this episode is Amanda Robinson. Uh, Amanda is now the Vice President of Architecture for Acoustic, uh, who are based in Canada. Uh, but before that, she was with Marshall Day Acoustics in Australia for 17 years. Uh, she served as co-CEO of the Australian uh, business. Um, she also served on the board. Um, she was primarily involved in uh, building acoustics as her technical area, uh, including work with the Australian Acoustical Society. Um, she sits on the Wells International Sound Advisory Committee. Uh, and she was also, until recently, uh, my boss. Um, I'd wanted to record an interview with Amanda for a long time. Uh, and once it was clear she was not going to be my boss anymore, uh, I took the opportunity to sit down with her and have this chat before she left Australia for Canada. I hope you enjoy. So I'm with Amanda Robinson, co-CEO of Marshall Day Acoustics Outgoing, now headed to Air Acoustics in Canada. Um, very impressive titles, um, but how do you explain what it is you do to someone at a barbecue? So I would normally start off by saying that I am an acoustic engineer, and when somebody says, what does that mean? Um, I would explain that we make things sound great. So it could be anything from a building sounding quiet to a road sounding quiet to a concert hall sounding amazing. Um, there's a very wide breadth of what we get involved with. And how, what led you into acoustics? How did that path occur? Was this something you what, dreamed of as a child? Oh God, no. I um, did mechanical engineering, uh, University of Adelaide, one of the best, best universities around. A few, um, few graduates have come out of there. Yep. Um, and acoustics was pretty much the only subject that I actually enjoyed during the course. And following our final year um, project, Peter Swift, Dr. Peter Swift came and spoke to the class and said that they were looking to hire people. So I applied for the role, um, having also applied for lots of other roles and been rejected and got an interview and the rest is history. I fell in love with it. And I've been doing acoustics now for 25 years. And there is no two jobs that I've had that are identical. Mm. And that's what I love about it. And you've done acoustics in Adelaide as well as Melbourne. And you took a sojourn overseas. So I started my career in Adelaide at Bassett Consulting Engineers. I was then selected for an exchange program to go to the UK to a sister company called Faber Maunsell, which then got bought out by Acom. So I spent five years in London. And then I came to Melbourne. I've spent 17 and a half years in Melbourne. And now I'm heading to Canada. And who knows how long I'm going to spend there, but you know, I'd like to, like to see how different people approach the problem. Uh, so, having worked in some different places in different countries, do you see any differences in the way we work as acousticians or the way we handle 
the job? The laws of physics are the same. So the, you know, the methodologies for analysing the problems are the same, but the criterion used by each country differs and can differ quite greatly. Mm. So, you know, whereas we use, um, you know, different terminology for sound insulation, um, in America they still use, or in Canada they they use other terminology. So, um, you know, different people approach it in different ways. So, I, off over all of those things you've done over a few years, what are you most proud of? So the one project that really sticks out for me as being um, one of my favourites uh, was the ABC um, studios in Southbank. So we, we started it at feasibility stage. I then got pregnant, um, went off, had a child. The project went on hold fortuitously. <laughs> and when I came back from maternity leave, it really kicked into the design stage. So I was lucky enough that I got to do the concept, I got to do, you know, look at the existing um, studios out at um, oh, wherever it was, Riffin Lee, and then saw the project through to completion. And it was just, the, the thing I loved about it is that everybody was invested in making it the best project. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody went the extra mile to make it great. And, you know, it's a fabulous building, fabulous studio spaces. I learned so much. Um, you know, we were able to achieve such high levels of performance that they could use one of the TV studios whilst they were still building the other one. Mm. So that's pretty uh, impressive. So on a project like that where everyone is pulling toward the same goal and working together, that's not always the case on projects. What do you think was different about that team or that that project that had that, you know, cohesive uh, alignment? I think it was the values that the client put on it at the outset. So they had very specifically chosen the consultants for the team and it was people that they'd worked with before. Um, ProBuild were on the project. They were excellent at the time. They had a very experienced team. And I think that made a big difference. Mm. So on the flip side, sometimes things don't go to plan or don't go how you expect they are going to work. Can you tell me about a time when something's not turned out the way you thought it was going to and, and what you took from that experience? Yeah, so my, my biggest screw up, I would say, was a project in London, which was city in Westminster. Uh, so a hotel job in the middle of the city overlooking the Thames. Um, I looked at the drawings and I saw what I thought was a plant room, had a door and everything, you know, there was a lot of plant in there. And when I got to site to do an inspection, you know, some months after having the done the design, it was mesh grill around it with a gate and no roof. And I just looked at it and my heart sank, you know, and it's we a then- horrible feeling. Oh, it's awful. <laughs> and so then I disappeared for three days. My partner at the time said, my God, what's happened? You know, I just retreated and then pulled myself back together 
and sat down and worked out how we could resolve the issue. So we ended up upping some of the attenuation, wrapping the fans, um, coming up with a neat solution for it. And then I took that to the builder and fessed up, put my hand up. And he was great about it, you know, made me feel that it wasn't such a big issue. Um, but yeah, it was not a, not a pleasant experience at all. And, but it really made me, you know, stop and question everything that you now see on a drawing. Never, ever take anything for granted. Mm. So that was my takeaway from it. So own your mistakes and learn from them. Yeah. Um, now you have sat on the board of Marshall Day, um, which is a bit outside. It's not something everyone does in acoustics, but it's there's obviously a lot of small to medium size companies out there that will have um, their owners or their shareholders represented on a board. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience and what you sort of have taken from it and, and maybe what things you, what pearls of wisdom you might share? <laughs> yeah. Um, so before I went on to the board, I think it's fair to say I spent a good 12 months sitting in board meetings just observing what went on before I actually, you know, made the transition onto the board. So I wasn't coming in completely cold. And I did it because I was interested in the bigger picture of how the company operated. So, and I thought I could provide assistance to people that I could see were struggling with, you know, workload and management and things. And I thought, well, here's somewhere where I can help out. Um, so that's how I initially uh, got into the board role. Um, very much an eye-opener. You really see things from a very different perspective than, you know, a bottom-up. It's more of a top-down um, driven process. Um, and I really enjoyed, you know, getting to understand the financial acumen of the business, the way things operate, some of the politics behind the scenes, you know, things that don't necessarily get aired um, in everyday consulting. Um, and I learned a lot from it. And since my time on the board, I have um, joined a board accelerator program, uh, which is run by Helia Svensson. And that is about women on boards and how they can you know, best get onto boards or if there's issues that they're operating um, on the boards that they're operating on, how they can uh, best navigate them and it's fascinating so it's certainly something that I think when I went into it I was quite green I think now having stepped back from it I would be more confident about going onto a board and being able to make change and add value to that board hmm. and plug for Helga's take on board podcast which has an interview with you talking at more length about this Hellier. very so oh, Hellier, sorry. <laughs> you can edit thought that I might bit. get that right <laughs> um, uh, Now you, you touched on women on boards there, mm -hmm. and obviously the boardrooms of Australia have um, uh, a bit of a diversity uh, disparity, um, as as does acoustic consulting and 
engineering consulting in general. Uh Um, What do we do as a a community of consultants and as employers and as um, peers in the industry to um, help broaden the diversity in the field and to um, bring more women up through to senior management and onto our boards? If you can just answer that in 30 seconds. Two part question. Um, So I think first going back to the diversity issue of women entering, and I don't think it's limited to just, you know, engineering per se. I think it is all of the STEM fields. It is about, like, when I was at university, there was five out of, you know, 50 engineers, mechanical engineers. Um, When I spoke to the university probably 12 months ago, those numbers haven't changed. Mm. So we are not seeing women in the university realm taking up these subjects, which means there's a supply issue further down the stream, if you like. So we're, we're not getting to people um, and young women at high school mm. age, which was really where we need to start to focus things, make them interested in it, see the, how they can take it. And I think it is shifting, but it's not, not quick enough. Mm. Um, so I think that's the first side of it. In terms of um, diversity on boards and you know getting people to senior management, um, I think it is about empowering women and giving them, I'm reading a fabulous book at the moment called No Ceilings, No Walls, which is about giving women the missing parts that they're not um, necessarily brought up with. So, which is about the business acumen and the financial acumen. Mm. So men tend to naturally get exposed to those skills. Women don't. Women have more of the soft skills, if you like, Mm. um, and aren't exposed to that, which then holds them back when they are in a position of going into the board. I was just talking to our colleague Jill earlier this afternoon about this question and the fact that a lot of uh, that sort of management training is delivered by men often talking about the need, the real need for pe- for leaders to develop empathy um, and the assumption that, you know, business acumen's already on the list um, doesn't necessarily hit the mark for uh, some of the women in the room. Un- unless you've actively sought it out, it isn't, you know, it's not available to yeah. you. So... And that seems to be the missing link. Mm. I think it's also about the language used. You know, women tend to, if you want a woman to do a job, she won't put herself forward unless she is 110, 120% sure that she can do that job. Mm. Whereas you put a guy in the same boat, he's 70% sure and he's like, yep, I can do it. Yeah. If there's there's a list of 10 dot points that they're looking for for candidates, women won't apply unless they've got all 10 Ticked and the men, if they've got six of them, they'll say, yeah, that's close enough. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Um, you uh, have sat or sit, depending on when this podcast goes out, um, on the executive of the AAAC as well as the, so the Association of Australasian Acoustical Consultants, so our member 
a not-for-profit peak body for firms in acoustic consulting, mm -hmm. as well as on the AAS, the Australian Acoustical Society, the, the, um, the peak body for individuals in our industry. Is there something that one or both of those should be doing more or differently or? We've talked at the AAS level because there is this money in the society effectively and it's a not-for-profit as to whether we harness that for things like you know, promotion and education and getting into STEM, but then it sort of morphs into, well, where do you draw the line? Mm. You know, shouldn't we be encouraging all people into the fraternity of acoustics? Mm. Um, so for that one, it's kind of stalled. Um, but I, I think it's about getting into the schools mm. and, you know, I come back to the, um, the guest speaker that was at the AAAC conference this year who was talking about, you know, women in roles and if you can't see it, you can't be it. Mm. You know, it's about having people put themselves up and, you know, be acknowledged for that mm. and be visible to that women. Dr. Katie Spirit. Spirit, that's correct. Yeah, she was a very good speaker. Mm. Um, so you've done board roles, you've done uh, the engineering roles at really the highest level in terms of complexity of building projects. Um, then five years ago, you took on role as co-CEO of Marshall Day Acoustics in Australia. Mm -hmm. I can tell me a little bit about that experience and that role and, and stepping up into a role like that. Um, and and maybe the, the second part of that question is about the nature of a co-CEO role because that's not, um, it's not the norm. Mm -hmm. So how did, how did you, how did you find the, the experience, the transition from, um, you know, a, a, I guess part of the management team and then stepping into a role that was really a, a leadership role at the top of the organisation? I guess I tend to think of it not as stepping up into the role, but as not stepping back as quickly as I should have. <laughs> <laughs> it was it certainly wasn't something on my radar at the time. And when initially asked, I said no. And then I said, okay, I'll do it for two years. <laughs> and now it's been five years and enough is enough. So I've pulled the pin on it. But I mean, it's been an amazing opportunity and I am very grateful and humbled to be given the keys, if you like, to the car and said, here you go. You know, and there was no, don't crash it, don't scratch it, take it, you know, drive it as you would. Um, you know, which obviously took a lot of courage from the company and from Peter Fernside. Um, but yeah, ultimately, it's not, it's not where I guess I want to be. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm an engineer by trade. I miss the technical side of things. Mm. And so going into a, you know, it was almost wholly management side of things is not what I was brought up to do. You know, it's a very, very different role. Yeah. 
and in terms of the co-CEO side of things, so it was great to be able to share the journey. And I think over that journey, so over that period, we had COVID smack bang in the middle, mm. um, which is just another, you know, another level <laughs> again of management and, you know, looking at how, how to resolve things quickly and keep your head. Um, yeah, so that was challenging. And I think having somebody to communicate with and bounce things off during that period was absolutely essential. So, you know, it was daily communication. And in fact, we, we still communicate on a daily basis on, you know, the management of the company. Mm. Now, if we've talked a bit about the sort of the management side, what about uh, the technical side? I know your focus has always really been the building side of acoustics rather than the environmental side. Um, and I know you've got a particular interest, well, in a number of areas, but education being one of them and the change in the way that we uh, design and use and utilize space in schools. Do you want to, as we move into, I guess, you know, we're in the 2020s now, and it's been a few decades now since you and I were in a primary school classroom as a student or a high school classroom even. Um, we're seeing a big shift in the way that, that the teaching is administered, and it's much more uh, diverse in the way that it is taught uh, and the way that um, students are leading that teaching and um, the spaces are responding to that. Do you have any insight that we should take note of in terms of how we as acousticians are listening to what's needed in those environments and, and designing for them? Um, yes. <laughs> but <laughs> need to tread carefully here so I don't tread on anyone's toes. I think it's, um, I mean, ultimately education spaces are speaking and learning spaces. And if you can't hear what is being said, then you cannot learn, you know, if you can't listen. And it's got to be, it's not just, you know, back when you and I were at school, there isn't a teacher at the head of the room with, you know, kids on grids or cells with bells. Um, you know, it is almost like a, an organic space where a speaker and a listener can be anywhere in that space. And so the space acoustic design has to respond to that. Mm. So um, I think there is currently too much emphasis put on sound insulation between classrooms and not enough emphasis put on the room acoustics in the space, which for me is by far the most important parameter. So I would, you know, it tends to be sound insulation, you know, the, the room acoustics feel, and then mechanical services at the end. And I would actually put room acoustics, mechanical services, and sound insulation down the bottom. Mm. Which is quite sort of counter to the way a lot of space at schools are designed. Mm -hmm. There's a real sort of uh, requirements on isolation between spaces that are pretty, you know, tightly tested and controlled. 
It's wasted uh, money, in my opinion. Yeah. You'd be far better off putting the money into the room acoustics of the space and, you know, having something that can work organically mm. and flexibly. I always come back to the idea that a building is, is an experiential space and it is for a purpose. And if we identify what that purpose is, then we can identify what the acoustic response is. And so that idea that a school is for communication and for being able to understand one another mm-hmm. um, and process what we're hearing, that's um, you know a wider concept that then overlays into whatever we're doing, whether it's an office fit out or a residential building or, you know. Hmm. Yep. So, Tell me about what the future of acoustics looks like. Because it's a bit different to when I started. <laughs> That's exciting. I, I think but fundamentally, the laws of physics don't change. Mm. So, yes, the tools that we use to analyse spaces is changing rapidly. But the fundamentals of how sound behaves does not change. So I like coming back to that as a constant because mm. that I can understand the tools and things I think are super exciting. And, you know, I can't wait to see how um, the architectural and the acoustics world can really integrate. I think we're only just starting to see tools come out of that that will really make a difference into the future and make things much more um, efficient and easy to change things and see um, the effect of it. I think at the moment, like, because people are quite visual, um, you know, we tap into that visual side of things. And as acousticians, we don't really tap into the audio side of things. And I think that's a missed opportunity Mm. at the moment that we can really start to you know, get the common people or the people who don't understand what we're involved with to understand what we're delivering at the end of the project and what it means for them. Mm. So that's the future of acoustics. What about the future for Amanda Robinson? You're about to jet off. I'm sure by the time this podcast lands, you'll be in... uh, Toronto. Icy cold <laughs> Canada. I well, know, it'll be summer by the time I land, so oh, it's, it's not going to be icy cold. No, just just moderately <laughs> cold. Um, <laughs> what what do you still want to do in your career or, or in your work? You're obviously making a big leap professionally uh, and personally. and um, The leap, I would say, is more personal than professional. Mm. Um, I'd certainly, I mean, it's it's a dream job for me um, because it's the technical side without the management side. Mm. <laughs> dream come true. Um, and that's what I want to get back to. You know, I want to get back to grassroots, but it's also about having the ability to spend time with family and watch my son grow up and experience a new culture and, you know, do all those sorts of things. And what would you tell the someone starting out in acoustics, or what would you tell the uh, you know the eighteen year old Amanda Robinson? <laughs> Could any 
advice for people launching into or considering a launch into a career in acoustics? I think what I have found over my career is that I've been very open to new opportunities, um, you know, to the point of seeking them out. And that has, you know, led me <laughs> on the journey that I've been on. So it's not about, um, certainly not a linear path by any stretch of the imagination. It's about, you know, if you see an opportunity, take it, don't be afraid to put yourself out there and okay, it may not come off the first time, try again. If it's something that you really want to do, you'll make it happen. Um, does, what, what, I'm interested in the role that music and the, the crossover between music and, and acousticians, because there seems to be a, a bit of a commonality in there. It's not, it's certainly not 100% crossover, but is, are you, do you play an instrument? Are you interested in music? And what, what influence has that had on your career or career choice? Sorry, I, I play, <laughs> I, I ha have a recorder, <laughs> which my mother found when she was cleaning out recently. <laughs> and I can remember playing that in year four. Is that um, a musical instrument? Yeah. <laughs> Still in its red denim recorders. <laughs> and I own a bass guitar. And I started learning the bass guitar because I wanted to play bass like Kim Deal from the Pixies. Nice. Or the Breeders. Yeah. And I, I didn't get very far with it. But it certainly, over COVID, I found that I tried a different skill <laughs> tried to develop a different skill every lockdown. Mm -hmm. So I made kombucha, I took back up oil painting, um, I did a bit of cooking in there, and music was my next one. And so that was... Well, fingers crossed for the next lockdown. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> It'll happen sometime in the future. But the fact that it's, you know, COVID really showed me that, you know, there was an awful lot more hours in the day that previously I'd just been spending on working and actually it was nice to put time into you know some personal mm. skills so you found time for that my my son plays piano beautifully and you know sight reads music and things and so that that's a skill i want to pick up so that i can help support him very nice so you've got an engineering background you've worked with um you know, uh, not-for-profit um, bodies like the AAAC and AAS. You've been on boards. You've you've been in uh, management CEO type roles. Um, these are all very transferable skills outside of the acoustics field um, to leap into all sorts of different roles. But you've taken on a job as your next role, which is still in acoustics. What is it that uh, keeps you in acoustics? I think it's the variety of the work. So again, coming back to that point that I've never done two jobs that are identical. Mm. There's some that are similar, but they're never identical. And the other thing is that the acoustics fraternity is 
such a tight-knit community and I enjoy being part of that and I enjoy being part of the international acoustics fraternity. Mm. So, you know, it's something that I'm passionate about and I want to stay involved with. Well, Amanda, thank you for your time and best of luck in Canada. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thank <laughs> you.